Welcome to the Art and Science of Success. I'm your host, Jonathan Brown. Now this 12-part podcast series has been created to help you make the most of the recovery opportunities, however long they last. In the last 12 years, I've worked with some of the world's top leaders, companies and teams to help them create success in highly challenging situations. And in that time, I've got to know some of the world's top practitioners and researchers into the toughest situations we can face. As we work to rebuild our businesses and even our communities, I wanted to offer some free resources and insights that I know help leaders because we use them every day helping our clients to deliver amazing results. So we ask them, what insights and ideas do you have that leaders can apply to help them survive and thrive whatever happens in the next few months or even the next few years? We have to find ways of inspiring our people to become even better. And if there was ever a time for you to do truly great work, to truly be your best more often, it's today. So I hope these podcasts will help you in some small way to create even more success for you and for those you care about. Welcome back to part two of our interview with retired Brigadier General Tom Coldings, Executive Director of the Alan John Dar Institute for New Leaders at Rice University in Houston, Texas. In this episode, Tom continues giving his advice for how we can lead people out of lockdown. And we begin with perhaps the biggest issue in leadership today, which according to Tom, is cowardice. And cowardice as a product of excessive self-interest. He gets into how he developed a truly amazing team at Rice, and he has an extraordinarily simple policy for increasing the likelihood of a successful hire. We get into, as well, a very important topic and theme for these podcasts, psychological safety. He he explores how he creates it and shares times when he sometimes fails to do so. And then we also look at how he's created a truly amazing mentoring network for himself and the Institute. I hope you enjoy it. What I want to talk to you about, um, Tom, now is just the, is the, the changes that we're going through in society. I'd like to talk to you about courage and cowardice um, and your take on, on those two things. Sure. Well, you know, a lot is talked about in leader development around courage. Uh, you know, there's, there's a tremendous uh, appeal to people who have been courageous, whether they're mountain climbers or Navy SEALs or SAS or, you know, whatever uh, they happen to be. But from looking at business, and I would just say even the military, what's really much more common is a, a level of cowardice that we see almost every day. And when you look at the dictionary definition of cowardice, the central element is excessive self-interest. So when a, when a coward runs away from the battlefield, they're exhibiting excessive self-interest. Rather than staying and fighting with their people on the right or their left, they, they run away uh, to protect themselves. But we see excessive self-interest in business all the time. You know, we talked about people who take advantage of their peers. That's generally excessive self-interest. People who commit ethical violations in business. When you dig down and you find the root cause, almost always, it's excessive self-interest. People who embezzle, people who steal. And so I have always thought that it's much more productive to talk to people a little bit about how much, how much selflessness do you, should you be exhibiting and when does your self-interest, which we all have, 
And in many respects, it drives a lot of business. But when does it become excessive? What are the markers for that? Um, and the markers for that really define what we call ethical leadership. Almost always an unethical behavior, uh, you know, sexual harassment, taking advantage of an employee because of your power, it's excessive self-interest. And so once we can begin to shape people's understanding that it's not about being courageous that's really required in business. I mean, there are some gutsy decisions for sure, but most of the time you don't need courage. What you need is an absence of cowardice, an absence of this excessive focus on oneself. And it goes right back to the first thing we talked about in leadership was that it's not about you, that it's about, you know, serving your people. And, and the whole thing that the, the, the job of a leader is to take care of others, not to, not to be served by others. Exactly. And so even now, the whole focus of the Door Institute is making other institutions better. That's what we're doing with the Carnegie Foundation. It's not about us being number one. You know, it's not about us getting all the students that, that Harvard wants or Vanderbilt wants or, or, or whatever. It's about making other institutions better. And I, I believe that through that kind of selflessness that we really elevate. You know, we elevate our position. And it's not a self-interested kind of elevation, you know, keeping all the secrets to ourselves. We give it all away. Well, and you know, and, and one of the, I guess the, the thing that's that's very that's, that's clear is that there's is that you, you can't give away what's most important. And I don't mean I don't mean your secret, you know, the secrets that you have in your own in you know in your filing cabinet in your office, Tom. I'm talking about the culture that you've created and what you were saying just before we started the talk is that, you know, the innovation that you've got at your, you know, at, at your institute is that it's like, well, give everything away because within six months we'll have created better anyway. So we're good, you know, and actually, do you know what? And it's really not about that. I'd, I'd like to come back to this whole thing about selfless um, because I don't know that your mum was selfless when she was, you know, when she was taking care of people, right? She was being, she was being, you know, instead of it, the I, it was a we, right? And she was focusing on community. So it's, is, is, is it reasonable to say that the, the whole thing about excessive self-interest is when there's, there's too much focus on, on my short-term interest? And I guess, you know, running away from the battlefield is, that's just the immediate interest, right? So you've got your short-term interest, and then it's actually our collective interest. And the way we get cowardice is when someone focuses only on themselves and not on on the collective or on the group. Yeah, it's it's really taking advantage um, of the fact that the group is is working hard towards one goal, and you're just taking from that for for yourself. Um, you know, there there was there, there's a group of individuals, or there's a there's a, a certain philosophy that exists in some business where they say greed is good you know, that we're here to make money. And consequently, we should be focused on, on getting as much as we can. And that's how we'll be mostly rewarded as individuals. What we wind up with then is an organization that's composed of a bunch of individuals. And it, it almost always goes badly from there. 
so if you have people working as a group or as a team and they're putting the organization first, they'll make little sacrifices, staying late to work. You know, somebody that doesn't stay late, they just don't want to put in the time, that's excessive self-interest. And so, you know, when people are committed to the organization, when they'll do whatever they have to do to make the mission work, when they'll support the people on their right and their left, not just getting for themselves what they, what they can, that's a healthy organization. That's what you want. That's an organization of leaders. And when you have this loosely knit conglomerate of people who are all in it for themselves, it's a disaster. I can remember, there's a great story about a parachute team called Arizona Airspeed. And it was started uh, by a fellow who, whose father ran a, a drop zone. And, and the, the young man, when he was 18, he said, I'm going to build the best parachute team in the world. And so he got literally all of the best skydivers in the world together and put them together in a team and said, we're going to go win the world meet. His name is Jack Jeffries, and he's an org development guy now. But when he did that, it was a disaster. They didn't win anything because they had all these high ego people. They were the best individual performers in the world, but they weren't a team. And so he reformatted it and he got not just the best skydivers in the world, but really, really high quality skydivers who could work together as a team. He got a team's expert named a psychologist named Bob Phillips to help him. And when they built that team, it won the world meet multiple times in a row. And the team didn't have any of the world's best skydivers on it for the most part but they had the best team. And that's what happens when you put more into the team than you do into yourself. So did they, so what, what behave, what, what's, what behaves were they, did they recruit for then the second time around? So they were looking at people that were humble. They were looking at people with, with really good skills and seemingly some potential in the sport. Uh, they were looking for people who were pleasant to be around. I mean, when they had the, the so-called best jumpers from all the countries and so on and so forth, a lot of these people were assholes, excuse my language, but they were just jerks and they were arrogant. They had protective egos. They were easily offended. And so their practices were blowing up. People were blaming one another instead of looking at themselves and looking at the team. They were all self-interested. And so when, they, when he got people who were less self-interested and people who wanted to win, it worked. I mean, I, I will just say, and, and I think this is common in the team's literature, that when you compose a a championship team, what you don't want is all of the best individuals. That is a recipe for disaster. So when you recruited your people then, because you have, what, about 100 people now at the Dar Institute? 
Yeah, I mean, counting all the vendors and students and so forth, yes. But uh, yeah, about 100. And, and what, and, and so do you have any criteria for, for looking at, for recruiting them? Well, you know, for the coaches, uh, we look at reputation. And then in their first coaching experiences, we pay very close attention to their metrics because we metric every session from both the perspective of the student and the coach. Now, for people inside my own office, I'm looking for very distinguished markers, talent markers. So uh, one of my head leader developers, Stephanie Taylor, her former work was as a leader developer for Teach for America, a very highly respected organization in, in the United States. That's what got her through the door. Um, our digital communications and marketing person was actually a pageant winner. In, at her university, Auburn University, she was Miss Auburn 2017. So she can sing, she can dance. Uh, she was summa cum laude from the School of Journalism. Wow. So academically very talented. And when a file like that comes across your desk and you look at it and you see these multiple talent markers, not just great experience, but like it takes a lot at a university with 30,000 people to be Miss Auburn, you know, Miss. And so those kinds of things, those special markers, I jump on. And, and we have a team of really special people here, every single one of them. And I know when, when, we, when, we, when I first got in touch, um, there was just two of you, but was it you and Lily? Is that right? Right. Right. And even Lily, you know, she was managing an office of 19 plastic surgeons at, at our cancer hospital. here. What's it take to manage 19 doctors? You know, um, they are not the most. <laughs> I would say, what does it take to manage 19 people with a God complex? <laughs> right. But she was terrific at that. Ryan Brown was tenured in a name chair at a major university, you know, and teaching research psychology, teaching how to measure, how to do research, research methods. Um, so these are all really rare people. Um, and, and that's what I, that's really what I look for is unique talent, unique skills that it's just kind of jumping out at you. Experience by itself, yeah, it's a little bit important, but people get experience with us and we, we teach them to be excellent. I mean, we teach them what it means to be a part of this team, but I'm really looking for some raw talent uh, and almost everybody here has it. Um, That's amazing because you've got, you've got the balance of everyone can be a leader pretty much. If you want to be, you can be. And then you've also got the most selective organization that you can find. Yeah, you know, we have, we have one other criteria that everyone in the organization would tell you that it's our criteria. And it's called the camping test. And the camping test is, would I be willing to go camping alone with this person? <laughs> and if the answer to that is no, they don't get hired. 
And that's what prevents us from filling up with egotistical, hard to get along with, ultra intense kind of people. They have to pass the camping test. And that's a hundred percent vote. If any one of my primary staff here, the 10 or so people that I work with every day, any one of them says they fail the camping test, they're out. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> just uh, my mind's just popped. I just need a second, mate, just to just to get it back together in one piece. Let me just see what questions we've got left. Um Do you know what, um, Tom? There's been a trend recently, and one thing because I know, I know we're coming up to a to a close is um, psychological safety and the concept of psychological safety. And I was talking with um, Fred Luskin um, at Stanford, and we were talking about the way in which um, the government had done a great job in creating physical safety at the expense of psychological safety. And so they've done and what how Fred described it was necessary but insufficient actions. Yes to isolate, yes to the measures that were first brought in, but without a sense of how can we create that psychological safety. And I just wondered what your take is. And, you, and you, when you look back over your career, whether it was in, you know, on the Korean border or, you know, hitchhiking around Afghanistan and Iraq um, and today really working with teams. And what do you do to create psychological safety in your staff? Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a way that I failed to do that and that I'm trying to do better. So one of the things you learn, and I, <clears throat> I see this a lot, almost the more senior leaders get, the more terse you are in your communications, particularly your emails. You know, senior people do not go on and on and on in emails. They're very brief. They tend to be very brief. And so I have one employee in particular who told me through an email that she was talking to a, an outside entity and, and talking to them about possible programming that we might do for them. And it was, it was a little controversial. And so I wrote her an email and I said, please send me that email. That's all I said. Please send me that email. And she wrote me back and she said, well, it was a, it was a LinkedIn communication. So I really can't, forward you that. And I wrote her back and I said, just cut paste the text, please. And I was using please. No, I mean, I, and the next thing I know, I get a call from Lily. And she's like, what's wrong? I said, there's nothing wrong. Well, so-and-so said that you, you sent her this email is very aggressive and threatening. I said, what? And and, and, you know, initially I was like, come on, I, just send me the damn email, you know. But then I talked to my wife. And my wife said, couldn't you have told her why you wanted that info? I mean, you just wanted to look at it. You weren't angry. You weren't whatever. Couldn't, couldn't you just tell her that? And, and I, was, I was headed down the road of being defensive, saying, you know, I, I don't have to. I, I just you know, just the facts, please, you know. And then I realized that, that in my communication style, I was not giving them 
this sense of psychological safety because because it was too cryptic it was too it was too brief and that's the way i grew up you know the generals who i work for they'd send (coughs) five word emails to me you know yeah and um so i'm i'm trying really hard now when i communicate people to be a little bit more sensitive to the fact that they might be worried about why that they might need a little bit of uh encouragement or 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 what have you and so when it comes to psychological safety i think the lesson there for me and for other people is you create it 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 doesn't just happen you know you have to create it by being positive by making sure people understand that you're you know you're oriented on the mission and not with finding fault with what they're doing or or, uh, you know, focusing on anything negative. And is this person insecure? Well, maybe. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. But it's my job to lead her. You know, it's my job to make sure that when I send her a communication, it doesn't make her worry so much that she calls my deputy. I mean, that was a phone call that was a waste of time. It was a waste of time for everybody for the most part. So, Um, you know, you create this sense of psychological safety. Another thing that I do, you know, I I really detest sexual harassment and the abuse of employees in any way, uh, including bullying and so forth. So when I hire somebody, I, I sit them down and I explain to them what I consider to be bullying, what I consider to be, you know, harassment, which is a little bit more strict than even the legal definition. And then I tell them, if any of this ever happens to you, I want you to call me 24-7. And I'm not just talking about while you are in my employ. I want you to call me for the rest of your life. And I will fight this fight for you in ways that don't disrupt your career, in ways that don't blow up the situation, because I know how to do this. I'm not naive. But it's not just while you work for me. It's, it's forever. And uh, when I do that, I think people understand that this is a safe place to work. Um, that I'm not just going through some pro forma, uh, you know, I've got to tell you this because you're my employee kind of thing. Um, you know, on those kinds of things, it's one strike you're out and, uh, and I won't tolerate it at all. So, you know, that's when people meet me, you know, when we hire somebody and it's in the intake and they're, they're going to spend an hour with me and I'm going to tell them what it's like to work for me. That's always the message. Not just now, you know, forever. I will not put up with that and you will not put up with that. Where does that come from? You know, it comes from a belief that you do things as a leader, not because of a quid pro quo, but because it's the right thing to do. So when I was a young officer, I would frequently hear sergeants say, hey, take care of your men and they'll take care of you. Well, that's a quid pro quo. I don't take care of my men because they'll take care of me. I take care of my men because it's the right thing to do. 
And it's the same thing with addressing the, the harassment, the bullying, the bad workplace behavior. I don't do that because that employee will then be a better employee for me. It's a given. It's the right thing to do. That's why I do it. But it's not about protecting the organization, protecting me. There's a higher level of moral authority to this. And if I'm willing to do it for that person while they work for me, what does it say when I won't support them when they don't work for me? That says it was a quid pro quo. You know, there's something that you said in one of the, um, I think it was the, um, the leadership, the character and leadership um, symposium. Was it? And, and you, you talked to the, to, the, to the people in the audience who were cadets and you said that, it's your, that leadership is it's your job. Right. And, and yet that, that there is a, there's a nuance to that, that it, it's your, it really in, in the sense of one of the previous leaders of, of my old organization as it's your calling or it's your duty. It's your duty to do the right thing. It's not, it's not because you're paid to do it. It's because you're, you're drawn to serve. And that's the only reason why you should become a leader is because you want to contribute, not because you're going to get rewarded, but you're there to serve. And it's your duty to protect your people. Number one. Yeah, and you know, it's it's not at all a military thing. No, no. And I tell business leaders, look, you know, nobody forced you to be a leader. You know, nobody forced you to step up and say, I want to be an executive in this organization or what have you. And when you become a leader, now you're putting food on other people's tables. You're helping them put a roof over their head. You're going to affect where they can send their child to school. And with all of that comes a moral obligation. So that moral obligation is what should drive you as a leader. Not the fact that you're making a given salary or that, you know, uh, you know, you got to take care of these people. So they're going to work harder for you. Leadership is a moral obligation to the people that you're leading. And that's especially true of elected leaders and it's especially embarrassing when we see so many elected leaders that are so focused on their own reelection and their own political advantage that they're not putting enough moral authority into the leadership that they provide to the country or to the state, wherever it is. I mean, our, our leadership, our political leadership in the United States has lost their way with that. And, uh, well, if you may, if you, you may, I don't know if you're ahead of us or not, but in the UK, we seem to be doing a, an equally bad job at that. We've just got a, a scandal just breaking at the moment about how the prime minister had his apartment um, renovated and $1,200 rolls of wallpaper and stuff that appears to have appeared out of nowhere. Yeah, I, um, I read that today. Right, tremendously disappointing, really is. Um, so, Tom... When you're looking ahead now for your organization, so you're creating collaboration with, with universities in America um, and, and sharing all your, everything that you've got people can have, what's, what's next for the Dar Institute? So, you know, our vision is more and better leaders, period. And so we're looking, you know, our, our work with the Carnegie Foundation is one way of creating conditions for universities to produce more and better leaders. Um, there are myriad ways 
that we can do things that would create more and better leaders. I was talking to a, to a leadership consultant in uh, Gothenburg, Sweden, and I was talking to her about her circumstances. And one of the things that's curious about Sweden is that they have certain laws that cover development. So there are laws that say there's certain training required in companies and and so on and so forth. And that's not really the case in the United States. I mean, we've got a few laws around sexual harassment and things, but, but other than that. So we're, we're even thinking creatively about to what extent the legislatures could get involved with requiring a certain level of leadership training in our state universities, because our state universities really exist to create citizens in that state that are educated, that can build companies, run companies, and so on and so forth. It seems a little weak to us that a state university can graduate, say, 30,000 people and have none of them receive leadership training or leader development. To me, that seems a little wrong, you know, a little... uh, a little impractical, for example. I mean, you know, as a state school, you should want your graduates to be able to manage people, run things, create startups. So why would we create a state educational system that doesn't provide that? So that's kind of an out-of-the-box way of, of viewing it. But if that were to create more and better leaders, and if we could get a state legislature to go with that, we might do that. Um, you know, if we could make uh, or change the, the way coaches are developed and trained so that they're better able to work in colleges and universities, maybe we'll do that. Um, I don't think there's any limit. I mean, the limit is the creativity of the people that work in this office and, and our focus not on, you know, becoming the best leadership program. That's not what we do. I mean, we've got a great program, but that's not what we do. You know, we want more and better leaders. And we think we can create large numbers of them using university systems. And by large numbers, I mean more than a half million a year, better trained. Um, and, And we are not pie in the sky people. When, when I tell you we think we in the next three to five years, we can get to a half million better trained leaders, I know what those numbers look like in terms of universities and what they're going to have to do and who's going to have to do it. I'm not just making that up. I mean, that's what we're going to do. Well, I mean, when I look at the, the people involved in the Institute and, um, you know, Ann and John Daw to begin with, John Daw, obviously, I think he's probably known to, um, to most people, as, um, but Ann Daw is in a role at the Khan um, Academy. So again, just massive, not just large scale, but massive scale educational um, and developmental processes and systems and stuff. And um, yeah, and it's, and I noticed there was, I mean, I mean, it's, it's now a controversial figure, but um, on your external board, you've got Klaus Schwab um, as, a, as a member of the external board. Um, and the thing that he's trying, I mean, I know, I know there's some, there's some, some negative stuff about what the the World Economic Forum is trying to do, but when you look at the you know the positive aims of it, um, that again there's an opportunity. Then he was saying that you guys are advising them on development. Is that right? Or well, you know, we've presented at the forum 
uh, specifically in Dalian, the summer right. golf there in Dalian. And, um, you know, Klaus Schwab is not the World Economic Forum. I mean, he's the chairman and, and so forth, but he's also a brilliant professor, a, uh, a visionary, and that's really our connectivity with him is, is you know, looking far, far ahead and, and uh, you know, getting a little bit of advice from a person who has that, that level of perspective. Uh, you know, it's the same with Al Gore, who's on our board. It's the same with Colin Powell. Uh, Jim Collins, who's a pretty well-known leadership yeah. guy. Um, of our entire board, I think Jim has been more helpful and insightful uh, to me in particular. Uh, I talked to Jim in a, a forum. I'm on the Fast Company Impact Council, Fast Company being a, a magazine that we have. Yeah. And uh, Jim was speaking there and I asked him, you know, how do I manage a movement? This is a movement, you know, people don't write very much about how to lead movements, you know. And uh, Jim told me to pay attention to how Teach for America was developed, that uh, Wendy Kopp, you know, didn't have any authority over anyone to do that. She just found a lot of like-minded people and built momentum and the flywheel was turning and, and she made it happen. And by going after what we're doing as a movement, uh, we've been much more successful, I think, than we would have been if we, if we took it as like a sales challenge or something, you know. Um, so Jim Collins has been enormously helpful to me really in the past 10 years. I've known him for a while, and uh, and he's because he was at what he came to West Point, didn't he? Yeah, I hired him to be our our leadership chair, and we overlapped only about six months. It was a two year appointment, so you know I brought him in, and then I ran off to Yale. But he uh, he stayed there and had a terrific experience there, not only with with the cadets in general, but. If you know much about Jim Collins personally, he's an avid mountain climber. And uh, he worked with the West Point climbing team as well uh, in terms of their leadership and their development. So uh, he's, he's been a great friend to the Dorans too. Hmm. You know, if I, was, if I was thinking about when I was you know, reading up on your, on your stuff and and just thinking of the demand um, side opportunities that that you can that that some of your students could do, right? Of, of of encouraging having students come to university with the expectation that they will be made into better leaders, and also and also the other side on companies saying we want we want more and better leaders. And because um, I think now if you look at the crisis that's hitting higher education with all the COVID crisis and and the the, the stark am I getting value questions now being asked by more and more people this to me would look like a fantastic reason to stay at university rather than just to say to hell with it. I'm going into the, you know, going straight to work. Oh yeah. On the student side, we see a lot of students who want to come to Rice who write about the Door Institute in their application essays. And on the, on the hiring side, we've had a European oil company ask us for a direct pipeline of students through the Door Institute into their company. And we said no to that because we don't want students coming to us because they want to get a job. 
We want them coming to us because they want to be better leaders. But the, the chief human resource officers are among the first to see the real value of this because they can get a semi-finished product. You know, there's no such thing as a complete leader, uh, but they can get someone that has had a really good start and that saves them money. And those people are better hires. They'll do better in their first position. They can take on more responsibility. It's a huge value to business. I've never understood why we allowed business to take over the, the, the mission of developing people as leaders. They should be selling products and services and, and building uh, you know, new, new widgets. But instead, they've got to have this massive talent management so who used to do it then? Who, who was in charge of it? Well, from my perspective, universities should be giving them a semi-finished product when it comes to skilled leaders. And instead, the universities have done little to nothing. And so the businesses have to start with their new hires. Yeah. And they don't want to spend any more money, so they only focus on high potentials which turns leadership into an elite status, which isn't helpful. Um, and, and, you know, I, our people make better followers. Even if they don't go into leader roles, at least they understand more about leadership and about leading themselves. So, you know, now look, businesses do better when they develop people. That's just a fact. So I'm not arguing against development in business. I'm just saying the university system needs to do its part. 100%. Yeah. So I mean, Tom, I'm conscious that we're running over, um, running over time. Um, one thing, I'd, given your perspective of where you are right now and having worked with some of the world's leading companies, um, what causes you to be optimistic about the near and, and oh, well, what, I mean, I'm assuming you are optimistic about the future of the of your country and um, and where we're heading as a planet. Well, you know, in terms of leadership, I I really feel like we've about hit rock bottom here, and uh, we're on our way back up. And uh, I I am optimistic, mostly because I've always been optimistic about young people. Um. You know, it's been disappointing that we have uh, not created the conditions where a lot of young people want to be leaders. You know, wanting to be a leader is not anywhere near a universal desire among top college students in the United States. And it's, I believe, because of what they have seen from leadership. And, you know, when you think of the fact that, you know, people who are college freshmen right now, their entire adult life, they've seen pretty bad leadership and, uh, and, and they don't have respect for it. They don't necessarily have respect for senators and congressmen. They don't necessarily have respect for business leaders. And, but I also think that there's, they are now learning that there are good leaders and bad leaders and that we don't have to tolerate the bad ones. And that they don't have to be bad ones, you know, that they can bring a lot to the table. So I'm really optimistic. You know, I, uh, 
we have improved 40% of a top 15 university student body in measurable ways with respect to leadership. If that doesn't make you optimistic, I don't know what would. You know, that the fact that we can move the needle for 800 plus people a year and that we will graduate four out of 10 people in a, in, in a top tier university that are gonna be better leaders, they're gonna be better bosses, they're gonna be better followers, they're gonna be more effective interpersonally, they're gonna be more emotionally intelligent, and we, and, you know, remarkably, it's cost half of what classroom instruction costs. It's not gold-plated. It's just minding the store. It's just focusing on the mission. And um, that makes me optimistic. But, you know, I guess when you ask that question, Tom, um, what would cause me to be pessimistic about, certainly about this short to near-term future, is, is having time for your guys to develop and to be able to come into leadership positions and that the damage that's going to be done by the excessive self-interest of people currently in leadership positions um, is potentially going to have catastrophic impact on, on our societies. Um, and that's the thing that, that worries me most. Yeah. You know, initial leadership experiences, you know, first, uh, first job, uh, is really more than anything else what determines retention in our army by young officers. If they work for a bad leader in their first job, you never get them back. And uh, I think the way to help with either in the military or in, or in business is to, is to manage expectations. You know, tell them, you're probably not going to work for a hero. You know, you're going to see things and, and be in circumstances that you will not enjoy, that you will not appreciate. But you, when you are in that role, you'll be better. And what advice would you give someone to, to keep going through that period when, when the system itself is, is, is borderline toxic or toxic? How can someone protect themselves and keep being that example? Well, you know, I, I think a lot of it has to do with peer support. You know, we're all in this together. We all know this is wrong, but we're going to get through it and get to the other side. And I think that a lot of times when you see the power of mentoring relationships, it's, it's from people who they're not working for. And so they begin to realize that, you know, everybody isn't like this person who's frustrating them. And, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's not easy, but I, I think when we start injecting larger and larger percentages of trained leaders, people who know a little bit more about themselves and about how to lead, we start injecting that in, in the hundreds of thousands a year, uh, it's going to turn the aircraft carrier. It's, it's not going to happen overnight, but it's going to happen relatively quickly. Um, and you know what, one of the things I tell my people is, you know, there are 4,500 universities in the United States graduating 2.2 million people a year. If we're only 5% successful, think of how many people that is, you know, and those people 
are going to touch other people through their leadership. So now think about how many people we're impacting. And, I, and when I teach exec ed, I always tell people, I said, I am not in this room for you. You know, I'm here for the people you're going to lead. So it's not the 60 execs or the 50 execs in this room. It's the million people that you all are going to lead over the next 10 years that I'm here for. And that's why you should be here too. You know, I never let leaders in a room think that it's about themselves. Um, it's been um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Just um, yeah, it's, and and doing the work to to prepare for this conversation as well has been has been terrific. Both reminding me of insights that you've already given me, and your work's given me, and and stuff that's inspired. And um, I think the, the the biggest thing I was talking with like with with Mike Matthews last week about this, and the thing that I got probably the the biggest lesson I've got from you is that is that competence is a character issue. Competence as leadership is a moral obligation. You do not have the right to not be competent at what you're doing if you're leading others, especially in challenging situations. And that, for me, is a is a thing that that's you know that I've taken most of from I think among all the other things. But but that's the thing that really stands out. And I just I just so appreciate the example that you set for others. Um. Well, thanks. You know, I'm I'm just doing the best I can, and. Uh... I've, I've been very fortunate to have a lot of the right experiences and be around with a lot of right people. And, um, you know, I'm at this point in my career, I don't need money. I don't need fame. You know, I, I need to be able to look back on my life and say that I made a difference for people. And I'm just doing that as fast and as hard as I can right now. And that was, um, I remember you telling a story about some some honorary guides from the army that, that gave you that lesson. That legacy is in is in the contribution to others and, and you get legacy from developing people. General Doc Bonson. Right, that's it. Yeah. Tough guy. He's a Facebook friend now. <laughs> Tom, thanks very much, mate. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the Art and Science of Success. I'm Jonathan Brown. If you want to learn more about the topics we've discussed today, be sure to visit alppartners.com where you'll find the show notes and other resources. And if you join our community there, you'll get access to even more battle-tested ideas to help you create success for yourself and your organization. You can also arrange a free call to explore how we can help you accelerate learning and performance in your organization If you enjoyed this show, be sure to subscribe. And if you have a minute, pop over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to give us a positive rating. Thanks for listening.